0: Welcome to Equipus Christchurch. Equipus Church is a whole lot of friends championing one another to go higher in Christ. For more details, check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch. Hi, my name's Emma, for those who I haven't met. Hi to everyone who's joining us in online. It's great to have you here. Um, We are aware there's a bit of sickness around, so if you are unwell... Um, Make sure that you're reaching out through the church app if you need things like food or meals, or we'd love to support you if if that's what you're... Yeah, and we're praying for you too, but reach out if you need support. Um, So we've been in a series called Commissioned, and this series is really our banner for the year. We're asking, what does it look like to live a commissioned life? And we've been looking at Matthew 28 in which Jesus gives a mission to his disciples, and the church is formed in response to that mission. We, as a people, are called to go and make disciples. And last week, we looked at being baptized both in water and in the Spirit, and what a powerful time it was. Um, And if that did bring up some questions around water baptism, feel free to uh, catch anyone if you want to discuss it further, or through the app or at the help desk as well. Um, And today, we finish by looking at the final part of Jesus' instruction in Matthew 28. Teach these new disciples to obey all the commands I have given you. And be sure of this, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. So there are two parts to this last instruction, teach and obey. The implication is that we won't always know how to do what Jesus calls us to do. We need to be taught. And we won't always want to do what Jesus calls us to do. We can choose to obey. (laughs) So today, it's my prayer that we can take stock of where we're at when it comes to Jesus's invitation to be taught and obey. But let's pray first. Would you close your eyes and join me? Thank you, God, that you're here God, it's just an honour to be in your presence, and we thank you that you're, 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 you are here, that you are speaking and moving, God, and we just have open hearts this morning, God. Would you shift things around? Would you shake things up? Would you reveal things to us that we need to hear, God? I pray that this would be... Um, a space that is uh, that we would respond to what you're doing, God. That there wouldn't be shame or guilt in this place, God. But that would have open hearts, and that would um, there would be a desire that you um, increase in us to pursue after you. Thank you, God. Amen. So we live in a culture that y- in which you can be almost anything except wrong. We don't like being wrong. We double down, we explain, we justify. We don't like saying, I was wrong. And we don't like saying, I'm sorry. You know, Western culture looks at humility not as a strength, but as a weakness. And I'm sure you may have observed this on a daily basis in some interactions that you have, but research shows us quite clearly that over the last 100 years, we have moved towards being a self-absorbed culture. There's a book by David Brooks, it's called The Road to Character. It's not a Christian book, but he talks about this idea of humility. And in the 1950s, they asked a group of high school students, how many of you view yourself as a very important person? And when they collected all the answers, only 12% of the class said that they thought that. In 2005, they asked the same question, and almost the entire group of high school students, over 80%, believed that they were a very important person. I wonder what the percentage would be today. Now, I know that we are all very important because we are made in the image of God. But there is a teaching that's come into our society that is self-absorbed, humanistic in nature, that puts you at the center of everything. Psychologists test for narcissism by going through a series of statements. For example, because I am an extraordinary, oh sorry, because I am extraordinary, someone should write a biography on me. (laughs) You laugh, but it's true. Do you know that the medium narcissism score has risen by 30% in the last 20 years? Studies have also found that self-esteem has increased, but in Western cultures, this comes with a desire for fame. In 1976, another survey asked young people about their life goals. Fame was placed 15 out of 16. In two thousand and seven, they did the same survey, and fifty one per cent of young people reported that being famous was their life's top goal. In the same study, they asked young people if they could choose well, if they could choose between different jobs. Twice as many said that they would rather be a celebrity's assistant than the president of Harvard University. Culturally, we are inundated with this idea of self. The idea that fame will bring purpose and happiness in our life. But we don't need to be psychologists to highlight the data that we are not becoming happier and we don't have peace. You know, I've realized since having children that I can be quite stubborn when I want to be. Something I've only learnt through parenting a little person who's just like me. <laughs> and one of the things that I'm consistently wrong about, which plays out often in our marriage, is in measuring the dimensions of things and whether they will fit in certain spaces. When we were newly married and we were studying, we decided that we needed a desk. So I got on TradeMe. you know, we didn't have Marketplace at that time. And I saw this solid wood desk for $1. So I naturally, you know, I thought, sweet deal, I'm gonna buy that, that looks pretty good. So I bought it. Now part of the tension in our relationship is that I do the buying, but then Jono does the collecting. (laughs) So, like John expressed his concerns about this desk before picking it up, and my instructions would have been something along the lines of, like, "Oh, yeah, it's pretty big. You might want to get a van." Um, and it happened that that day, my dad was also there, so he went along to help him. And it was taking quite a while before they returned, and when they did, they weren't super pleased. And I could see from where the car was parked and they were kind of looking up at the house because, you know, at that time, we lived in a quintessential Wellington flat. So up a rickety, steep set of stairs, um, the bottom flat that was about the size of a shoebox. Like, that was an upgrade from our previous flat where I would know the only time I could not see Jono was when he was in the bathroom. But this flat also had really tiny doorways. So they started to slowly carry this desk up these really steep stairs, and and when they got closer, I realized just how big this desk actually was. And when they got to the front door, it became clear that it wasn't going to fit through. Not only that, but because of the size of the desk compared to our snug flat, even I could see that it wasn't getting around any corners once we did get it inside. At that point, I knew I was wrong. (laughs) I should have measured the desk and I should have shown it to Jono before buying it. But was that the point that I sincerely apologized and, you know, rung the Salvation Army to come and pick up this desk? Nope, it wasn't. That was when I said, oh, you'll just have to go through the window. And they did manage to get it through those old-school windows that used to, like, open halfway across the thing. Um, And the desk wasn't spoken about ever again (laughs) until we had to move one year later. Now, before we moved, I should have said then, oh, let's just get rid of it. You know, to be honest, I hardly even used it because it was, like, in this back room that was cold and mouldy, and I just didn't want to be in there. But no, I didn't want to be wrong. I wanted to portray that this desk was like a super helpful purchase, um, that was very much needed, and I didn't want to acknowledge that I had very poor visual-spatial skills. So I made this desk come with us when we moved. Eventually, when we moved out of the next flat a few years later, we ended up chopping up this desk with an axe because we couldn't fit it through the doorway. In hindsight, who cares that I made a mistake about the desk? It would have been much easier just to say, oh, I'm sorry I didn't measure it. I don't really need a desk that size, let's get rid of it. But no, I doubled down, I made a big deal that I love this desk and I carried on this way for years. And I'd like to say that the desk was the only time that something like this happened, but unfortunately that's not true. And because I didn't acknowledge my mistake, it made things pretty tense whenever Jono found out I had bought something else for the next few years. I think a part of why we struggle with saying we're wrong is because our culture is also obsessed with punishment and not justice. You know, if someone makes a mistake, especially online, we don't want to see them make things right and make amends, apologize, be restored. We want to see them destroyed because then we feel good, we feel superior. You see, central to this idea of teaching is that we don't do the right thing, the helpful thing, the life-giving thing. Because sometimes we're wrong. No one is perfect. We all make mistakes. We all get things wrong. The question is though, can we be wrong the right way? Being teachable starts with the acknowledgement, I don't know everything. I get things wrong. And all throughout the Bible, we're reminded that a key way to approaching God is humility. And a well-known definition of humility that I love is from Rick Warren, which says, Humility is not thinking less of yourself, but thinking of yourself less often. In James 4 verse 6, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. In Matthew five, verse three, it says, God blesses those who are poor and realize their need for him. And in Proverbs 22, verse four, true humility and fear of the Lord leads to riches, honor, and long life. Now there's a whole nother sermon here about the wisdom of being able to be wrong. But for today, I'll simply ask, are we teachable? Can we be wrong? especially in relation to God, not in a guilty, shameful way, but simply saying, oh, God, I recognize that this wasn't a way of life and I'm choosing to adjust. Which leads me to the only thing less popular than being wrong, obedience. (laughs) Maybe the idea of obedience brings to mind power, rules, opposition, oppression, But Jesus invites us to life. His invitation is not just to know his teachings, but to live them out, to obey them. It's a way of life. We're invited to obey because it's more than just knowing. It's practicing. If you turn with me to Joshua 1, verses 7 to 8, this is God speaking to Joshua, who's just taken over leading the Israelites. And it says this, Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. In our English translations, what we read is obey and do are the same Hebrew word. We are to obey, we are to do, meaning we are to live out the teachings of the Bible. And here's the thing, there's a, there's a big gap between knowing and doing, We're invited not just to read the Bible, to hear someone talk about the Bible, to sing the Bible, even believe the Bible. We're invited to live the Bible. In fact, that's the best way to learn it. And I love this quote from Psalm 119, which is the longest chapter poem in the Bible, and it's about all of the commands of of God that are found in the Torah. And King David writes this. Psalm 119 verse 99, I have more insight than all my teachers, for I meditate on your statutes. I have more understanding than the elders, for I obey your precepts. That's a little bit arrogant, don't you think? I mean, in today's language, that could be something like, I know more than all of my professors at university because I actually do this stuff. But that's the idea. He's kind of onto something. The Bible comes alive when you live it out. You know, we have this amazing ability to separate belief from practice. It's totally normal in our culture to believe something but not practice it. You know, we've all been on that health kick, believing that refined sugar or carbs or whatever it is is bad for us. But then the family goes to McDonald's or it's late at night and you kind of get a craving and your practice doesn't line up with your belief. Or maybe that's just me. (laughs) Or we know about fair trade and ethical working conditions and consumerism, but then we see a sale and it would be mad not to. Practice and belief And not to dob him in, but a few weeks ago, Jono talked about some methods. (laughs) We're not going to rehash that. But I'm just saying, there have been some nights that I've heard snoring. (laughs) Belief in practice. I'm just saying it's hard. (laughs) But in all seriousness, I love this quote from Eugene Peterson. It says this. Obedience is the thing living in active response to the living God. The most important question we ask of this text is not, what does it mean, but what can I obey? A simple act of obedience will open up our lives to this text far more quickly than any number of Bible studies and dictionaries and concordances. I think that's so good, and I love his definition of obedience. Living in active response to a living God Do you get that? It's not legalism, guilt or obligation. It's living in active response to a living God. And God says to Joshua that when we obey the law, you will be prosperous and successful. And this is actually a reference to Psalm 1, which says that the one who delights in the law is like trees planted along the riverbank bearing fruit each season their leaves never, never wither and they prosper in all they do. That sounds good, right? So the byproduct of this life of obedience of living out the Bible is success and prosperity. Now maybe you're getting a little nervous because this is starting to sound like you know you're too blessed to be stressed or some sort of prosperity gospel but I think that one of the reasons prosperity gospel has been so damaging is because it's built on a truth. You know, I think here's the thing that we need to realize. We see in the Bible, and especially it's obvious in the Old Testament, that that God does seem to want success and prosperity for his people. But to understand that, we have to radically redefine what success and prosperity looks like in the economy of the kingdom of God. So when you read success... Don't imagine a house in the fancy suburb, a new car every six months, supermodel spouse, a large following on social media, a second house in a beautiful holiday location, perfect skin. Don't picture that. Picture Jesus. You know, a life well lived, right in the middle of pain and suffering on this side of the resurrection Vibrant relationships with people, with God, with creation. Peace and flourishing in and through you. You know, that's success. That's prosperity. And I found it helpful to know that actually the word that's translated as success, the Hebrew word, can also be translated as wisdom. Success and wisdom, in the Hebrew Bible, it's the exact same thing. And there's a theme that runs all the way through the Old Testament, and particularly around kind of Psalms and Proverbs, and the basic idea is that wisdom leads to success. And as a general rule, if you sum it up like this, it could be that wise people do well in life, and foolish or stupid people kind of crash and burn. And here's the thing, I think we think about this a lot in our culture, we Place a lot of value on success and prosperity. But the general line of thinking is that this might come from talent, like somebody who's really good at sports, is a good example. Or from intellect, IQ, you know, so and so is a genius. Or from work ethic, you know, oh, they just work all the time. Or maybe blind luck, like you were just there at the right time in the right place something like that, or some combination of the above. And there's truth in all of that, I'm sure. But in the Hebrew Bible, the idea is that success comes from wisdom, knowing how to live well, having the skill and the awareness for human life. And wisdom comes from where? It comes from God and it comes through the scriptures The law, the prophets, the teachings, the New Testament. And so the basic idea is is that if you could put a formula on it, which you can't, but if you could, it could be something like if you'll do well in life, if you delight in the Bible, meditate on the scriptures and actually live it out. Which leads me to Romans. Because I've experienced this thing where I want to do something I know that it would be helpful to do something. I know it would be wise to do something, but I just don't do it. And that's frustrating. Has anyone else had that experience? (laughs) And it's really easy to beat ourselves up about it. But I love that I'm in good company, but also from the Bible. You know, Paul, who wrote over half of the New Testament, says this in Romans 7, verse 15. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And he doubles down in verse 19. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyway. And then Paul is just laying it all out there. He's just getting all up in his feelings. And in verse 24, he says, Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Paul's asking, how do we do the things that we want to do, even if we don't feel like doing them? And the answer to revisit last week's message is, we can only follow Jesus through Jesus. Paul finishes in Romans 24, Romans 7, verse 24, when he says, "Oh, what a miserable person I am, who will free me from this life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God, the answer is in Jesus Christ, our Lord." And here's where I want to land this. If we realize I can be wrong. right way. I can be teachable. I can be humble. And it's not just about knowing, it's about doing. How do we do the things that we want to do? Because it's not just white-knuckling it. Paul doesn't say, thank God, the answer is me trying harder. But often, that's how we behave. Like, God saved me. God loves me. And now I'm on my own, I need to prove him right. I'm on my own now. If it's going to be, it's up to me. And the problem is that our willpower is a finite resource. The law is there in the Old Testament to illustrate. You cannot do this on your own. And so then sometimes we swing too far the other way. None of us. God is just going to magic my situations so I can avoid my character. You know, I want to get closer to God, but I don't read my Bible or attend church regularly. I'm in debt, so I think God's just going to give me winning lotto numbers. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 verse 10, but whatever I am now, it is all because God poured out his special favor on me and not without results. For I have worked harder than any of the other apostles, yet it was not I, but God who was working through me by his grace. We need to find the balance, God's grace and our willingness. We could put it this way. We do what we can, and we ask God to do what we can't. So I'm just going to invite the band up. So practically, what can you do when we want to obey God, but it's hard? A couple of things that come to mind for me that's helped me in my own journey is come back to the why, the revelation. Once you know the why behind something, there's a greater desire to do it. We can live a life that has more meaning and purpose. And if you don't know what this looks like yet, ask God for a revelation or a word and position yourself to hear it. We need to come back to a revelation, clarify its meaning and why it's important to us. And it's from this place that we can act obediently on what God has revealed and to then we will see transformation in our life. Once you've connected with your why, A helpful way of viewing it, sorry, a helpful way of viewing what you're doing about it, which is most evident in terms of our behavior, is whether you're making towards moves. These are actions that bring us closer to the person that we want to be and the things that matter most. Or away moves, actions that pull us off course from the person that we want to be or make the situation worse. Regardless of what situation we face, we have control over our towards and away moves. We can't often change the situation, but we do have control over our response to it. So away moves, what's getting in the way? Sometimes our away moves, those actions that are pulling us off course are easy to identify. And sometimes it can be really difficult to see them in ourselves. And I really encourage you that if you're feeling stuck, have a chat with someone that you trust. Try and work this stuff out together. A trusted friend, an e-group leader, a pastor, a therapist. One of the most common away moves comes down to how we feel or don't feel about something. I don't feel like I can. I feel awkward so I can't. Often we turn to our emotions as a measure of how capable or not we are to take action. I find myself regularly doing this. I don't feel like getting up early to read my Bible or go for a run or eat healthy. I'm too tired to go to e-group or team night or have people over. But feelings aren't actions. They can't cause us to do something. They're not behavior. Emotions feel powerful because they create urges and experiences in us that appear to motivate us to act or not. But one problem with relying on feelings is that they change all the time and they're impacted by what's going on inside us and around us. Or good feelings might motivate us initially to do something. It's easier to be obedient when it feels good. But we might not always feel this way because emotions change. So this isn't an effective way in helping us embrace our purpose long-term. Taking actions based on our revelations on what's meaningful to us is bigger than how we feel moment to moment. You know, habits and goal-directed behaviors are most effective when they're connected to a reason why. After you've got the why, be specific about the where and the when that you're going to do the action. So not just, I'm keen to join an e-group sometimes, but I'm going to go to Jono and Emma's e-group on Thursday at 7.30pm. That's not a plug, that's just an example. (laughs) Because most of us overestimate our capacity for self-control. But by deciding in advance exactly what we'll do, there's no deliberating when the time comes. Oh, do I really have to go to group tonight? Oh, it's been such a long day. I'm just gonna go next week. Making decisions ahead of time means that we are much more likely to follow through and move towards the life that we want. And so today, what's one step that you can take towards Jesus? And maybe right now the Holy Spirit is also highlighting an away move in your life. Something that's pulling off course from you being obedient to God. We're going to go into communion soon, but maybe just in this moment you can acknowledge it. Repent from it. And choose to do something differently to move towards Jesus. Jesus finishes the Great Commission with the encouragement. And be sure of this. I am with you always, even to the end of the age. We can only follow Jesus through Jesus. And so today we're going to finish with communion. And you should have got communion on your way in, but if you don't have one, just give us a wave because the host will come and give you one. Awesome everyone else got one so as you take your communion today you can take it in your own time I want us to simply reflect on this Jesus is with you Jesus is with you in all we do, in our following Him, as we learn, as we try, as we admit we're wrong, as we turn our knowledge into action, as we ask for His help in all that we can't do. He is with you. So as you take communion now, in your own time, I'd love to pray for us and then the band is gonna lead us in a song. But let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming to us, for making a way in our sin. Thank you for the cracker reminding us that we don't just live in our own capacity, you help us. And thank you for the juice reminding us that we don't earn your love, You love us as we are. Help us to be teachable. Help us to do what you call us to do, to live a way of life. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Check out our website at equipuschurch.com forward slash Christchurch.